Welcome to your Right to Speak discussions on social justice and advocacy. This is episode 63, and I'm your host, Salvatore. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Laura, who is a dear friend of mine, uh, and as well as a frontline worker in the youth shelter system. We'll be talking with her about the youth shelter system uh, and some of the gaps that she has seen and what she has learned in her career so far. Laura, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Laura. I, as Salvatore said, I'm currently a youth worker working um, at two shelters in downtown Toronto. Um, I support youth who are aged 16 to 25, um, and the hope in the work I do is to support them as they transition um, out of homelessness and um, into adulthood, having the life skills and the tools necessary to navigate um, their lives. Well, welcome on the show. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Uh, we are just going to dive into these questions and see where this journey takes us. So what have been uh, some of the gaps that you've seen within the youth uh, shelter system? Um, I think one of the biggest gaps that I've noticed in both um, of the uh, agent with the, both the agencies I've worked in have been um, issues of staffing. And I think um, this goes back to a bigger kind of more systemic issue with funding and resources um, provided by the government. Um, I find that staffing sometimes is a challenge. Um, agency, there's a lot of needs to be met um, in the youth shelter system, but sometimes there isn't enough staffing to support that. Um, I've also found that it is because of um, the, the, the nature of the, the work that we do and, and the, the transient population that we work with, um, sometimes there isn't enough space for um, enough, like adequate supervision and debriefing um, following crisis. Um, I find that uh, you're constantly having to be on the go um, and you have to be adaptable and, and responding to a variety of different things um, that it doesn't leave a lot of space to kind of come together as a team and and discuss certain incidents or crisis that that arises and um, it makes it difficult for staff to uh, process as a team or with their management team if that makes sense. I think because you know you hit the point when you said you know, funding. I think funding, it causes a lot of issues sometimes, uh, yeah. particularly with the staffing. I've noticed whether it's in the shelter system or where, whether I've worked in group homes or drop-in center, um, staffing is always lacking. We could always use more staff members. Um, yeah. So I think it's a long-running issue. And yeah, I, I agree with you with the space to kind of debrief after, you know, crisis and um, all that stuff. I, I, I think that's a long running issue as well across the sector. Which I think also goes back to the staffing piece, right? I mean, yeah. if, if there's always something happening um, on the floor and, and frontline workers need to be responding to that, management is usually supporting with those things. It doesn't leave much space um, for the aftermath and, and it doesn't necessarily always leave space to be able to get together and kind of 
strategize about or discuss um, what was done, what could be done differently. Um, but I do think both places I work uh, at are, are good at um, re- receiving feedback from staff. And I think that's been a common theme that staff have brought up about um, debriefing and things like that. Um, so hopefully, you know, as the field of CYC grows, that could be something that um, also grows with it. One could hope, Laura, one could hope. (laughs) I also think um, one thing I've noticed um, as I was transitioning out of university and and finishing up my studies and um, applying for different places to work and um, knowing I wanted to work in the the youth shelter system, I, I found it really interesting and maybe a little bit uh, disappointing, I guess, um, that mental health first aid wasn't a requirement um, for youth workers when applying for work. Um, I think that's another gap in the system. Um, the The basic requirement to to be eligible to apply for any uh, frontline job is to have first aid training. Um, but when it comes to mental health first aid, it it, ha- it isn't a requirement. And I think that that's um, something that could potentially cause damage or not be as productive for the young people that we work with. Um, because once we respond to crisis, we may not, while we have the tools necessary, there are certain things that, you know, should be... Uh, should be standard across the board, right? Like wherever you're working with whomever you're working with, um, there should be certain things that all staff should uh, have the tools to, you know, respond to crisis in a certain way or um, ensure that the needs of the youth are being met in certain ways. That is an interesting um, point because as a case manager in a youth shelter, when I applied, um, on the application, you know, it doesn't state that, but once I was hired on, there is a certain amount of uh, training that I need to get done. And mental health first aid is actually one of them. So it, it's very interesting that for frontline, um, it's not there. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's super necessary, right? I mean, you're working yeah. with young people every day and they face a lot of different challenges and, um, Every young, we can assume that every young person has their own trauma when when coming into the programs that we offer, um, and it's it. I believe that it should be a necessary requirement that staff have at least a basic, um, universal understanding of how to support these young people. Um, so it's interesting that that's not something that is currently a requirement for all frontline staff, but it's good to know that it is a requirement for case managers. So promising right yeah like once I was hired on it became that I needed to have some sort of um either mental health first aid or assist and Mm -hmm. I'm trained in assist so I was good for that um but you know I just thinking back to the other places where I've worked uh whether it was frontline or case managing that has not been a requirement and often we see for any type of CYC uh, job application, they do always ask, you know, crisis intervention, so like a CPI or UMAP type of thing, um, or NC, uh, CPR, but they never mention assist or mental health first aid. Um, right. 
So I that mean, it's a big gap. I mean, I think as a field, it needs to be a cultural shift. Right. For that. Well, I think, you know, it's it's funny because we, the shelter that I, one of the shelters I work at, um, a, re- a mandatory requirement is having UMAB. So, you know, you have the tools necessary to contain someone and to physically, you know, I get restraint is, is not a, a commonly used term um, today in our field, but at, that is what you're, you know, essentially what you're doing. Um, rather than being given the tools necessary to to de-escalate verbally and and use you know um, the education that you have to kind of support in that moment of crisis, so you're trained physically but not mentally or emotionally to to meet those needs, right? So I think it's definitely something I think uh, I would like to see in the field. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good point. I, it, very good point. <laughs> um, so what have been some of the, um, I guess, challenges that you face working with youth shelters and what have been some of the positives that you've come across? Um, I think a big challenge in our field as a whole is um, burnout, right? It's the first thing that we are taught going into um, our studies of in child and youth care. Um, it's something that we usually know a ton about in theory, but um, applying it in practice is a little bit uh, harder for for frontline workers because I think there's a lot of passion and, and, a, and a strong desire to want to do better and, and support the youth that we work with, but we tend to dive a little too deep and not uh, take a minute to again debrief and process and reflect on the things that we are um, facing every day. So I find that that's a big challenge um, in the system, uh, the, the youth shelter system, because I feel, you know, there's every day is a unique day. Um, it's very rare that I go into work and face exactly what I faced the day before. Um, so I feel like you're constantly on. You're always going in, um, expecting something significantly big to happen in, in your day. It's just the nature of, of the job in that setting. Um, but you nece- you don't necessarily always give yourself the time um, to wind down and kind of uh, leave work at work. So I think that's a big challenge is um, caring for yourself and, and um, practicing self-care in, way- in as many different ways and not just the ways that we are we have been taught, you know, being able to check in with yourself and, and see what works and what doesn't work. I think that's a challenge for um, myself working in the youth shelter system. And what have been some of the positives? Um, I think one of the, the, the biggest positives is the results, right? I mean, um, there's a lot of challenges and, and every day, like I said, is different. And, and there's, you know, sadly a lot of uh, systemic issues that our youth face and it, it can be challenging to go into that every day and, and um, to work really hard to like, to foster resiliency and to, you know, motivate our young people and, and uh, find ways to keep them going and, and wanting to achieve their goals. But I think the most rewarding piece is um, when you, you know, uh, 
bump into a young person on the street and, and they approach you and they, you know, tell you about all the progress that they're making or if they come for a visit to the shelter and they, you know, let you know that they've maintained housing for a certain period of time or they've, you know, finally finished school like they've wanted or um, are, you know, reconnected with family or whatever it is that they had hoped to achieve. Um, I think there's a lot of value in, in uh, being able to witness the growth and to know that you've uh, played some kind of role in that, I guess. Yeah, I uh, so I agree with both parts of your answer. I think, you know, one of the greatest things is seeing a youth accomplish their goals. Um, and, you know, we get the privilege of being in a glimpse of their life and, you know, know their story and history and knowing that they just accomplish a tiny bit of their goals is some of the most rewarding uh, stuff I've been a part of. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And, it, you know, burnout is a thing. You know, I remember, you know, being a CYC student thinking burnout, that's not for me. I'm not going to burn out. They're joking. And, you know, to all the students listening, it yeah. is a thing. <laughs> it doesn't. Uh, I, I used to think as a student that a burnout is something that I will face many years into my career. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm I'm new in the field. I don't have to worry about that right now because I have all these, you know, I know the impact of the work that we do on one's self, right? And I know that burnout is a thing and I know that I need to care for myself, but it's, it, you know, it happens overnight where you realize like, oh, wow, I haven't, I really haven't been caring for myself or, oh my gosh, I'm feeling so overwhelmed and I don't know why. And, and you don't take a step back to assess, um, you know, how, how uh, deeply involved you are or invested um, to the point where it might be destructive to your well-being and and counterproductive for the young people that we work with. So it's it's very real and it could happen very early on. There's no timeline to burnout. Um, and that was uh, a lesson I had to learn uh, very quickly. Yeah, so hopefully the future students listen. I, uh, I've definitely taken a page out of my life and learned some ways to, uh, to self-care because it's very important for us. Right. Right. And I think with self-care too, I mean, you know, the socially, I think self-care is becoming something that we talk about as a society a lot more, but we talk about it in a certain way and we talk about it looking a certain way, like, you know, physically caring for yourself or, you know, um, catching up on sleep and taking bubble baths and, you know, doing things for yourself. But I think recognizing that self-care is a lot more than that. And it means um, reflecting and it means creating boundaries and being able to say no and, and be comfortable saying no um, in your personal and your professional uh, life. And I think that comes with being in touch with yourself and being reflective about um, what works for you and what doesn't. Um, so I think it's self-care as a whole and not just in the way that we have been kind of programmed to understand it. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I am so happy you brought that up because, you know, I was thinking to myself, self-care is beyond getting a, you know, mani-pedi and beyond, uh, yeah, like, I mean, those are aspects to self-care for sure. Um, And, but I think it's more than that. I, I think the reflective piece is is so big, you know, um, we first learn about it in school and we think, you know, reflective writing is <laughs> done when you graduate, but, you know, self-reflecting, self-reflecting is a, it's very much a part of our lives right now, particularly because of the right. work. Right. Um, I think we were, you and I had a conversation some time ago about, uh, focus groups for, um, frontline workers and, um, I, I tried really hard in my first few months as a as a frontline worker to find um, groups where frontline staff, you know, of all different um, areas of the field, get together to kind of, you know, debrief and and discuss and have have a a space where they're able to kind of share and and um, care for one another or listen to one another. And I find that that's another gap is, you know, that's not very it's it's not necessarily um, very available. So I think that's another, it's knowing that, you know, sometimes having people from your field who understand, um, some of the, the challenges or the, you know, uh, the, yeah, I guess the challenges of, of working in the field and, you know, being able to kind of brainstorm together and, and get together and have someone who can relate and understand, um, could be super valuable, um, in the self-care piece. I hope so. I think, yeah, I mean, I think going into the field, especially, you know, there's a lot of students who start their career very early on at, you know, they finish placements and um, they, they, they jump right in. Right. And um, it's very easy to question um, your ability when you're new in the field, I think in general, but uh, personally for me, I, I found I was, questioning whether, you know, I did the right thing or I approached something the right way and um, whether it was normal that I was feeling, um, having certain feelings or, you know, being emotional about a certain um, case that I was working on or whatever it may be. So I think there's a lot of value in not only having supervision and having your management team tell you if you're, you know, give you feedback, but also someone who is working the field the same way that you are and kind of being able to say, hey, I've actually been, I've had a similar experience. Um, this is what worked for me. And, you know, kind of being able to talk things out with um, people that go through the same thing. So, yeah, I mean, definitely look into it. Yeah. And I mean, like, there's also the piece of a lot of the work we do is in the gray. Uh, boundaries for us are not black and white. They're just not. Um and because of the gray that we work in, you know, we really, you know, it's a huge opportunity to get to really connect with youth. Uh, but sometimes what that comes is if they're discharged from a program or, you know, we see them struggling, it hurts us inside too, right? Because we are working in the gray. And that's okay that it happens, but uh, it does have a toll, I would say, on on the self-care piece too, right? So 
I agree with you, like some sort of type of support group or focus group or something um, for us to kind of hash out of, you know, today I cried about this youth and that's okay to say, um, but to kind of just yeah, let it out. I agree completely. So, you know, in my time in the youth shelter system, which hasn't been long, it, uh, only since January, I have noticed that there's been this kind of revolving door from shelter to shelter. You know, the same youth gets discharged in one shelter, then goes to another shelter. And for the same reasons, they get discharged. And, you know, that circle starts or, you know, they're a youth, you know, gets housed and then it breaks down and then they're back in the youth shelter system. So we have these, you know, two revolving doors going on. Um, why do you think this is and how do you think we could address this? Um, and I would agree also, I think, you, you know, when it's tricky in the shelter system because there are rules and policies in place um, to keep the safety of other residents. Um, but what's difficult about it is we also have to respect youth where they're at, right? So yes, you know, destruction of property and all that stuff is not good and being violent and, you know, punching holes in walls or chasing people with brooms and whatnot is not a good thing. Uh, and it does cause, you know, it, it affects the safety of others in the shelter, 100% for sure. And that's possibly why, well, that is why they get discharged more times than not. But um, at the end of the day, we're not addressing the root cause. Which is trauma-informed care, right? We, you know, right. when you... When you work with a young person whose whose behaviors manifest in a certain way that you know is damaging property or is um, you know violence or or whatever it may be, we don't take the time to you know question. Okay, you know what is the trauma that this young person has faced that is that has you know caused them to respond in a certain way? And yes, we we should be holding young people accountable for. Um, the actions and, and the decisions that they make because that is also part of being trauma-informed. But I think sometimes we are quick to discharge them or let them down in that way, you know, tell them that, okay, well, you've just done this big thing. We're not going to have a discussion about it. You need to leave. So then they leave and they go to the next place and the next place may also not have have those discussions or, or do that work um, because, of again, a variety of different reasons that come from bigger you know issues like i like i said but the the young person becomes accustomed to having the system just let them down over and over and over again so you know it becomes a matter of going into a shelter having your basic needs met get some food a place to sleep uh clean clothing and you know you work you get an opportunity to work with them a little bit but then an incident occurs and then again they're discharged um and and the cycle continues, right? And then when it comes to maintaining housing, um, a lot of our young people are excited to in, live independently, but again, they don't have the tools necessary to you know, address their mental health needs, address their past trauma, address you know, all these things. 
Um, so they maintain housing for a very short period of time, find that they uh, might return to certain habits or might not um, have support to meet certain needs that they have, and they fall back into that cycle. And I've always said this, what's tricky uh, in working in a shelter system is we don't know a person's history or their story. Exactly. And it takes a long time to get to that, to even get to a small snippet of that. And that's what I think makes it challenging sometimes to address the root causes because like when I was working at a group home through the CARS system, we would get this basically package that has followed a youth from place to place if they were coming from, yeah. uh, and they had their history in there and it was up to the worker whether they wanted to read it or not. And, but regardless, the information was there, but when youth go from shelter to shelter, it becomes difficult because there's, you know, because of confidentiality, they're, their story gets lost. Right. And I think, you know, I get the confidentiality piece, but, you know, I, I you know, wonder if we can be a bit more innovative in the shelter system to somehow pass on information of why youth got discharged, right. you know? Uh, yeah. Could we understand that a little bit more? Um did one shelter just not work for that person? You know, like maybe they're just not getting along with the staff and they hit the fan, you know? Yeah. yeah. The, there's just so many reasons. And I, I don't think the system does a well enough job to understand those, um, right. you know, those challenges. When, when they leave the shelter system, I, I think that's another one of the other many gaps that are, you know, we're still working on is, a young person leaves and they maintain housing, but they don't have the resources that they once had at the shelter. You know, at a shelter, you have access to counseling, you have access to case managers, you have access. Um, at one of the shelters I work with, we have an employment center, housing workers, uh, a clinic, a mental health and substance use counselor. Like all these resources are made very available while a youth is accessing um, a shelter. But once they're gone, they might not have the motivation or the, the skills necessary to navigate um, community resources. And I think that we, there needs to be you know, better follow-up and to ensure that youth are still connected and youth are still getting that support that they needed while they were in shelter once they are out of the shelter. Because I think that's you know, even more imperative to their success and to keep them out of the shelter system. Um, so I think that's something that's really, really important. Yeah, I agree. I think there has to be a better uh, transition plan. And something that I've started to explore in my work is, you know, I have a youth who plans on moving out next year in the summer. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're interested in some, we have a housing follow-up program at my shelter where a housing follow-up person follows a youth for a certain period of time after they leave the shelter. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we were exploring that maybe a month or two before they move out, we sit down with the housing follow-up worker and we talk about transition and we talk about the work I've done with that young person and right. where the housing follow-up worker can kind of pick up, you know, just right. to really ease that transition and make sure communication is 
uh, very open and transparent. I agree. I think that's that's a great that's a great way to approach it, right? Because um, housing follow up may not always mean the same thing for every single person right. because every person has has different needs. So I think it's very valuable to be able to have the youth, you know, kind of give their insight on what they might be needing and, and to have someone advocate and, and say, like, this is what we've worked on. This is what we'd like to continue working on once this young person is no longer um, at the shelter. So I think that that's great.